Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. You're tuning in for our series, Passion, the week that changed the world. In this series, we are following in the footsteps of our Savior as we take a closer look at the last seven days of Jesus' life leading up to Easter. It's our hope this message will help you discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the message. A lot can happen in a week. On Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, hailed as a hero by cheering crowds waving palm branches. On Monday, Jesus turns over the tables of money changers in the temple, calling out their corrupt practices. On Wednesday, religious leaders plot to kill Jesus. On Thursday, Jesus celebrates a quiet dinner with friends. Later that night, he is betrayed and arrested in Gethsemane. He is beaten, brought to trial, and sentenced to death. On Friday, Jesus is crucified on the cross, suffering for sins he didn't commit. On Saturday, heaven held its breath. On Sunday, God turns the grave into a garden. Passion, the week that changed the world. I was seven years old when it happened. I, I was a good kid. Some might even say a great kid. A great kid, but, but not perfect. I mean, nobody's, nobody's perfect, right? I had... I had one minor flaw. This is going to shock you guys a bit, but as a kid, I was a tad bit of a talker. I mean, a sweet, kind, practically perfect in every way, but my mouth seemed to always get me into trouble. It wasn't so much the words that I said that were bad. It was more an issue of the quantity of my words. Any parents out there with a talker in their life? Uh, Joke's on me. My daughter, Winter, hasn't stopped talking since the moment she was born. So now I understand my parents' frustration. (laughs) My biggest issue for them, or their biggest issue, was, uh, was me at night. I would lay there in bed, reliving and replaying my entire day, doing everything that I could to stay awake, and on top of that, to keep my brother, who I shared a room with, awake as well. My parents tried everything they could to stifle my language use. They tried threatening me, one more word, and I will, but I saw right through that. They tried bribing me, we will give you a candy if you just go to bed. I took the candy, but I wasn't going to be swayed. They even tried the old Southern trick and washed my mouth out with soap, you know, to wash all the words out of my mouth. Don't judge them too harshly. It was the South, and it was a different time back then. Nothing worked, they're at their wit's end, and I was winning. And that's when it happened. The, the bribes, the threats, the punishments ended, and they turned to a new form of psychological warfare. A warfare that, quite frankly, I was not prepared for at the age of seven years old. One night before bed, my mom and dad came up to the bedroom. My dad brought with him the largest hammer I've ever seen and a single large nail. I was intimidated, but I wasn't about to show it. You never show fear in the middle of a standoff. You guys know that. He took the hammer and he went to the wall. He placed that single nail on the wall. Without saying a word, my mom hung up this portrait on the wall behind me. They both sat down on the bed, and they let me know that Jesus was always watching. That was it. Nothing else was said. They left me in the room, just me. 
and this guy alone. That first night, I remember laying in bed, my nightlight is illuminating one thing in my entire room, those eyes staring right back at me. They followed me everywhere that I went. Everywhere that I went, this guy, Jesus, was watching me all night long. And guys, I'm still scarred for life by this image, even just standing here on this stage. Do you know what kind of trauma this can cause a seven-year-old? And to this day, I don't know whether to be angry at my parents or applaud them for their parenting game. All I know is that they won the battle, but I wasn't allowed about to let them win the war. In fact, in response, I picked a career and profession that allows me to stand up in front of people on stage and talk as much as I want. So take that, mom and dad. I tell that story because this event at, at seven years old drastically altered my view of Jesus for my entire life. From, from this image, I, I learned that Jesus' eyes could pierce through me day or night, always watching me always watching me, no matter how much or how little I talked. I learned that Jesus was, in fact, a six-foot-two white guy with blonde hair, blue eyes, and a well-manicured beard. I picked up that Jesus was the, the kind of person that wasn't really mad at you. I mean, I mean this guy, he, he gave me mad at you, right? Just a little bit disappointed. I learned that Jesus was soft and meek and gentle. And did I mention that he's always watching me? Can I ask you a question? What, what view of Jesus do you have? Maybe you grew up with the same sort of Jesus I did. He's there just waiting for you to mess up so he can point a finger at you. You know, creepy eyes, Jesus. Maybe the Jesus you grew up with was always sitting with his, with his pet lamb right there. You know, like snuggly Jesus. Maybe your Jesus had, a, had like a red sash across his chest with like welcoming arms waving back at you. Beauty pageant, Jesus. What's your Jesus like? Is he weak? Is he powerful? Is he angry? Is he sad? Is he mad? What is your Jesus like? If we're honest, we, we all have a view of Jesus that we're bringing to the table, don't we? We all have assumptions and ideas of what Jesus was like. And here's my fear is that these presuppositions are sometimes a bit inaccurate or maybe even incomplete. Can I toss out the idea that maybe we need just a little bit bigger view of Jesus? In fact, I did a little bit of research on, uh, on this painting um, from the wall in my bedroom. He's still watching me, by the way. Um, this is the most reproduced image of Jesus in human history. It's called Head of Christ. It was painted by a man named Warner Salmon in 1940. And by the year 2000, it had been physically printed half a billion times. If you Google Jesus, it's the number one image shown, which means that this is the most pervasive image of Jesus in all of human history. Yet watch this. It's almost entirely inaccurate. Historians have gone back and they've determined that as a Middle Eastern man, Jesus was more than likely five foot five, not six two. He had short brown curly hair, brown eyes, and dark olive skin. In fact, the scriptures, they describe Jesus this way in Isaiah 53 2. They said that Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. What the scriptures are saying is that Jesus was not a beauty pageant winter. He's not a six-foot-two Fabio European Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. He was average in every sense of the word. In fact, forensic anthropologists have taken all the information we know about the average man from Galilee around the time of Jesus. 
and using well-preserved skull fragments, they put together a CGI reconstruction of what they believe best represented what Jesus might have looked like, what an average man from Galilee would look like. Jesus was an average man that lived an average life. The scriptures say that he didn't own a home or even have a bed to lay his head in. We know that Jesus came from Galilee, a backwoods area of Israel known for its poverty and its unschooled accent. Jesus traveled around for three years as an itinerant preacher. And after those three years were up, this man, on Sunday, March 29, 33 A.D., a real date in a real time, rode down the Mount of Olives, a real place, into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he was proclaimed king. And in one week, this ordinary and average man changed the entire world. That week, he would eventually go on to go head-to-head with the religious leaders in the temple. He would share a final meal with his friends. He'd be betrayed by his closest allies. He's going to eventually be falsely accused in a court of law and sentenced to death by humanity on a cross all in one week. And as a result of that one week's event, listen to this, 2.18 billion people on the planet today call Jesus Lord. One week can change the world, can't it? If you're joining us today, I want to welcome you to Liquid Church. My name's Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are jumping into week two of this series called Passion where we're walking with Jesus day by day through the final week of his life. And as a church, we are studying this man. We're setting aside our presuppositions about who and what he was so that we can discover him in a new light. We're allowing our view of Jesus just to get a little bit bigger. So I want to personally invite you to continue joining us this week as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. I also want you to know that the very, very best way to fully immerse yourself in this, in this journey is to join a small group. Last week, we launched groups here at Liquid, and the response has been overwhelming. We saw hundreds and hundreds of new people jumping into true community with one another. We have a group for every age and every stage. We've got groups in homes, out in the community, and even online. And all of us are committed to one thing over the next five weeks together, meeting Jesus in a new way. If you're interested, it's not too late to sign up. Go to liquidgroups.com today. And I just, I truly believe that stepping into the group could be the very thing that God uses to transform your life. So please don't miss out. Today, though, we're in week two of our series. If you have your Bible or you have an app, you can open up to the biographical account found in Mark 11. We're going to be camping out there today. And just as a recap from last week, we know that on Sunday, March 29, 33 AD, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He entered in with incredible fanfare. The people threw down their cloaks. They threw down palm branches in front of him as a sign that royalty was entering into the city. They're fully in support of Jesus. But remember, every single one of us has presuppositions of who and what Jesus is. For example, Even as I stand here right now, I'm nervous on stage because this guy is still looking at me, watching me as I speak. The people, the people in the crowd, they're proclaiming Jesus King, but here's the thing, they're no different than you or I. They too have ideas and expectations of Jesus. Listen in to what the crowd has to say as they parade Jesus into town. We'll pick up the account in Mark 11, verses 9 and 10. Here's what the crowd says. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, listen to this, Hosanna, which means Lord, save us. They said, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then check this out. Blessed is what? The coming kingdom of our father David Hosanna, Lord save us in the highest heaven. 
Did you catch it? They're calling out, Hosanna, Jesus, save us. But then watch what they say next. Jesus, save us by bringing us the kingdom of our father, David. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you can understand what the people are calling for. They're asking for Jesus to be the kind of king that they had in David. David was a conquering king that vanquished the foreign invaders. David was the first king to bring peace to Israel by making them a military power. And now the people want Jesus to do the same thing, to lead them to a military victory, to right the injustices in their land. They want Jesus to end the enslavement under occupying Rome and just allow the people to be free. But watch what Jesus does instead. We'll pick it up in verse 11. Here's what the scripture says. Jesus entered Jerusalem and took on Rome? No. Jesus entered Jerusalem and instead went to the temple courts. And we're going to pause right there. We're going to pause because within seconds of stepping into the city, Jesus breaks the expectations of the people who have just proclaimed him king. They're asking, they're calling for Jesus to save them from Rome, to end the injustice of slavery, military occupation. Yet what Jesus does instead is he goes to the temple. And to understand the implications of this, we've got to throw on our history hats for just a second. So please hang with me. Um, we need those hats to recognize why this is so offensive to the crowd. In the people's mind, Jesus is going to the wrong place. He shouldn't be headed to the temple. He should be headed to take on Rome. I'll tell you what I mean. Just a few days before Jesus arrived in town, two other individuals had more than likely entered into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. These two men are the two greatest enemies of the Jews at their time. Their names may sound familiar to, them, to you. Um, they're King Herod and Pontius Pilate. Both of them, in just a few days on Friday, will officiate a trial of Jesus, find him guilty, and sentence him to death. They're beyond hated by the people of Israel because of what they stand for. Herod stands for the governing body of Rome that's oppressing the people. Pilate is head of the military body occupying Israel at the time. And these two men hold the power of Rome, and they stand as the symbol of all that the Jewish people hate. In fact, if you do a quick study of these two men, you can easily see why they're so hated. Herod and his, and his family ascended as a, as a puppet king. Their family is, is partly Jewish, but they abandon this in favor of power from Rome. They turned on their own people. The family for decades has overly taxed the people to build and sustain their opulent life. King Herod's father is responsible for infanticide as he ordered the killing of the Jewish boys at the birth of Jesus in Luke 2. King Herod is responsible for the murder of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, which happened just a few years prior to these events. And these are just a few of the multitude of sins done by this horrific family. In fact, the Herodians are so widely hated by the people that multiple historic sources have mentioned that the family became neurotic, that the people of Judah would actually revolt against them. So using taxpayer money, they built grand fortresses and palaces all over the nation of Israel so that if revolt broke out, they would be safe. The ruins of these fortresses still exist in Herodium, Caesarea, Maritima, and Masada. Uh, Masada is my personal favorite. If you're going with us on our Israel trip, so excited for you. You'll actually get to go there. Um, but there's one last grand fortress of Herod's family that may be greater than all the others. It sits in the upper city of Jerusalem. And outside of the temple itself, there isn't a larger building in the entire city. Almost as a sign of dominance, Herod's palace in Jerusalem towers over the city. 
And over the weekend before Jesus' entry, historians believe that Herod held his own sort of processional into town. However, instead of coming into the city crowned as a king, Herod came in accompanied by 2,000 paid personal bodyguards. And these guards were needed to hold back the crowds that would have killed him had they been given the opportunity. This processional brought him to his very palace and from the Mount of Olives, watch this, as Jesus descends into the city with crowd behind him, he has in plain view both the palace and the temple. The expectation of Jesus with crowd behind and the people's support is that he would head to the palace and depose the king. He's got the followers. He's got the name. He's got the popularity. He's already been named king in his triumphal entry. He should just go to the palace. Yet he goes to the temple. There's some added political complexity in this moment as well. In fact, there's a second reason why Jesus should head to the palace. There's a second visitor there named Pilate, the governor of Judea. Remember, Pilate is the military leader of the Roman occupiers. In every town he's entered, he's erected pictures of Caesar and forced the people to worship them. He's stolen from the temple treasury for, for his own government programs. In fact, in fact, listen to this. In just a few years after Jesus' death, Pilate's going to be called back to Rome to stand trial for ruling too cruelly. That's right, Rome. The inventors of crucifixion are recalling one of their own for being too cruel as a ruler. So you can just imagine the unjust treatment of the Jewish people at the hands of Pilate. He's the greatest enemy of Israel. And get this, he too entered with his own processional earlier that weekend for the Passover festival. Only this was a procession of Roman soldiers and chariots. And now both men, Pilate and Herod, the king and the general, Rome and their puppet, both are in Jerusalem at the same time, at the same place. They're both resting in the palace. Once again, in clear view of Jesus, as he walks down into the city, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem via the Mount of Olives, this is the image that would sit in front of him. The temple towers over the city, but just beyond it are three other structures in the distance, reminding us and representing Herod's palace. That is where the power of Rome sits. Without much work, Jesus has the numbers and the popularity to march up the hill, storm the gates of the fortress, and restore Israel, removing the corrupt government. History has finally converged on this moment to be able to overthrow the occupying power. So the place that Jesus should be headed is to Herod's palace. That's where he can set to right centuries of justice. That's where he can restore God's people to greatness. That's why the cries and the chants of the people are behind him shouting, Hosanna, save us, Jesus. Take us to the palace and let's reclaim what we have always deserved. But what does Jesus do instead? He doesn't take the turn to go to the palace. He instead goes to the temple. And can you imagine your confusion if, if you're part of the crowd that day? Can you feel their, their disappointment or maybe even their anger? One thing that I know is that if you follow Jesus long enough, at some point, he'll let you down too. He'll turn left when you expect him to turn right. He'll show you that your, your view of him just is a bit too small and it needs to get bigger. In fact, maybe you're, you're here today and you feel like God hasn't shown up where and when you expected him. 
Maybe it was a prayer that you've been praying that went unanswered. Maybe it was a direction you thought your life was going to go that shifted on you suddenly. Perhaps it was, a, it was an illness that struck your family or it was a, a time in your, in your prayer life where you all of a sudden felt like you were just talking to yourself. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, you'll eventually get to a moment like this where Jesus doesn't do what you want him to do. And that's when you'll face a crossroads like this crowd does. Will you continue to follow him even when he doesn't do what you want him to do? One thing I've come to learn about Jesus is that Jesus is for you, but he, he doesn't work for you. Jesus is absolutely for you, but he doesn't work for you. It's so easy to follow a king, Hosanna, that does everything we want. But it's those moments where Jesus breaks our expectation that we have to make this decision of whether we'll trust that he's still for us. I think this is something that the crowd misses. Jesus deciding to go to the temple rather than the palace ultimately causes the crowd to to eventually turn on him by the end of the week where they'll call for his whole life. They were all on board for Jesus and still he stopped doing what they wanted him to do. So can I ask you this question? Will you continue to follow Jesus even when his path doesn't quite line up with yours? Will you let your view of Jesus get a little bit bigger in those moments? In fact, what I've found in my own life is those are the moments where Jesus tends to be up to something much grander. And I think that's what we're going to see in Mark's biography, is that Jesus has set his sights on a much greater injustice than two corrupt politicians. Those are dime a dozen in the world. His focus is instead on what's happening in the temple. And so on Monday, the very next morning, March 30th, the morning after Jesus' royal procession, Jesus enters the temple And we're going to watch what happens there. We'll pick up the account in verse 15. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. And watch what he does. He begins driving out those who are buying and selling there. He overturned the tables, flipping them over of the money changers, and flipped over the benches of those selling doves. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple's courts. And as he taught them, he said this, it is not written, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Just to be clear, guys, that's like, that's not my Jesus. My Jesus is like the always watching kind of Jesus, just waiting and judging, disappointed for sure, but especially not angry. And definitely not angry when I talk too much, just disappointed. But all joking aside, can I be honest with you? I've personally struggled with this passage for many years. I, I couldn't quite wrap my mind around the idea of a Jesus that would get angry. And I think that means that my view of Jesus just needed to get a bit bigger because there are things that anger Jesus in this world. And what's happening in the, in the temple is the greatest injustice of all. The money changers were not simply exchanging money The temple tax or or temple offering had to be paid using a very specific currency only minted in Jerusalem. So for nearly half a million pilgrims traveling long distances to come to God's house, they had to exchange their normal currency, their dollars, for this special temple coin. 
The only problem is that these money changers, especially at major holidays, were upcharging the exchange rate, specifically targeting the poor and the foreigner. Similarly, the, the people selling animals for sacrifice were racketeering prices. Imagine traveling days or even weeks to draw close to God by sacrificing an animal at the temple. You've got no way to transport that animal, meaning you actually have to buy one at the temple. But you arrive only to discover you can't afford to buy the animals because the prices have been artificially inflated. In fact, Jesus saw this very form of discrimination against the poor and the foreigner when he was a young boy. His parents took him to the temple, and the scriptures say that they could only offer two turtle doves. Realistically, Jesus' parents were the lucky ones. For so many who made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they were turned away because they didn't have enough money In other words, the religious authorities, the money changers, and those selling the sacrificial animals have placed a monetary barrier between people and God. Unless you had enough money for the temple and for the temple animals, you could not properly worship God. And I want you to hear this. If you hear nothing else today, nothing burns Jesus' anger brighter than putting barriers between God and his people. It makes him angry enough to flip over tables. In fact, the other gospel accounts say that Jesus fastened a rope and made it a whip and chased all the vendors out because nothing makes Jesus angrier than putting barriers between God and his people. In fact, every single time you see Jesus angry in all four gospel accounts, it's always surrounding barriers being placed between God and his people. When the disciples try to keep the children from coming to Jesus, Jesus chastises and says, no, 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 let the little children come to me. Don't keep them away from me just because of their age. Another time, Jesus is teaching and he heals a crippled woman. The religious leaders, they're jealous and so they start warning the people to not come forward for healing as it's just the Sabbath day. But Jesus yells out after them, calling them hypocrites because their rules are keeping people from freedom in God. In Matthew 18, 6, listen to this. These are Jesus's words. He says that if anyone, if anyone causes one of these little children, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better, better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I mean, I'm not from New York or New Jersey originally, but from my knowledge of the Godfather, that's like a mafia level threat. That angry Jesus is applying towards anyone that would put a stumbling block between God and his people. Are you catching it? Are you listening? Are you here? That is why Jesus would go to the temple instead of the palace. The greatest injustice of all is keeping God from his people. And I love what Jesus says at at the end of kicking out all these people. He proclaims this over his temple. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for what? For all nations. In God's temple, in God's house, there's always a seat for one more. But when Jesus surveys the temple, he burns with a righteous anger because the one place on earth that all nations should be welcome is instead plagued with racial, socioeconomic, and political oppression. People are being systematically excluded and marginalized, and Jesus has had enough of it. So when he cleanses the temple, he's making a clear statement that there is going to be nothing that stands between him and his people. Jesus is saying that there's a seat at the table for all types of all people of all backgrounds. Are you with me? In fact, 
Paul goes on to add to Jesus' words. Here's what he says in Galatians 3.28. He says, There are neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Why? Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus and Paul, they're echoing the same thing. They're saying that there's always another seat at Jesus' table. They're saying there's a seat for the wealthy and a seat for the poor and even a seat for the middle class. There's a room in God's house for all nations. That means there's a seat if you're brown, black, white, or anything in between. There might even be a seat for this guy right here. I don't know. Jesus has a seat for you. He has a seat for you. If you're male, if you're female, if you don't identify with either, Jesus has a seat for you. And by the way, if this list of people is starting to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, it probably means your image and your view of Jesus needs to get a little bit bigger because God's house is a house for all nations. That means there's a seat for the PhD, for the unschooled migrant worker, for the special needs adult. Jesus has a seat if you're Republican, if you're a Democrat, or if you're a card-carrying independent Green Party member. God has a seat for you regardless of your sexual orientation. He has a seat for the divorced father, the single mom. He has a seat for the righteous and the sinful, for the broken and for those who have had their entire life put back together. God's table always has a seat for one more. And let me just take it one step further. What that means is that if there's not a seat at your table for that group of people, then you're not sitting at Jesus's table. Our view of Jesus is too small and it just has to get bigger. We are living in a world that as inclusive as it claims to be has marginalized more people than ever. And can I make a confession? The church has historically been equally, if not more guilty of this same thing and it has to come to an end. So, So if you're offended by church organizations that prey on the poor to make themselves rich, it angered Jesus first. If your anger burns against religious leaders who use their position of power to manipulate and take advantage of the vulnerable, it angered Jesus first. If you're offended by hypocritical Christians who act one way on Sunday but live another way behind the scenes, it angered Jesus first. And do you know why? because there's no greater injustice in the entire world than keeping God from his people. We have to stop being a stumbling block between God and his people. Our view of Jesus is too small and it has to get bigger. That's why as a church, at Liquid Church, we'll we'll do anything we can to make room for one more. Regardless of where you've been or what you've done, you always have a seat here with us. In fact, nearly every single thing we do at Liquid is about opening up the door for one more. Have you ever wondered why we give out a t-shirt and mug to every new visitor who walks through our doors? It's because when a guest of honor arrives at your table, you pull out the seat and you pull out the fine china. Our God has been anxiously waiting for them to come home, so as a church, we are too. Do you want to know why we have so many campuses and so many buildings? It's not because we love to build buildings. It's because at the core of our organization, we have a belief that every single person in the entire state of New Jersey deserves the opportunity to be saturated with the good news of Jesus. And guess what? That means a lot more campuses and it means a lot more seats. 
Just last week, I got to visit two of our counties, two of our campuses. Shout out to Mountainside and Garwood. Thank you guys for hosting my family last weekend. It was an honor to worship alongside you. In fact, while I was there, um, someone from your campus reminded me of what matters most to our God. Um, I went, met a woman named Nancy, and um, she told me the story of our Garwood campus. She let me know that her and her husband were some of the last members of the original church um, that would eventually merge with Liquid. She told me about her family and how they'd all been married in this historic church. She told me about how she and so many that she had loved had been baptized in that old church. She talked about the building and what it meant to her um, with just such incredible affection. And then we talked about how difficult it must have been for her to give up so many things to merge with liquid. We talked about the music that changed. Although she did admit she kind of likes the guitar and drums over the piano and hymns. But don't tell anyone that was a secret between just us. We talked about the screens that got added in, the changes to the building and the design of the chapel. We talked about how the people she sat next to each week began to change. And one by one, we chatted through each of the traditions from her past and from her family that she said goodbye to in order to merge with our church. In fact, um, right here, right now, in the house, at all of our locations online, can we take a second to honor the sacrifices of Nancy, her husband, and so many others who opened their churches up to us? Thank you so, so much. Um, to the original congregations of Garwood, Mountainside, Passaic, Princeton, thanks for teaching us what it looks like to give up our preferences and our traditions to open up another seat at Jesus' table. We're standing on your shoulders and that rich legacy is one that we don't take lightly. So we want to honor you and thank you today. Thanks for your sacrifice. As my time with Nancy was, was coming to a close, I had one last question for her. I, I asked, why would you be willing to sacrifice so much for people you've never met? Her response shocked me. She said, for 10 years before we merged, 10 straight years, I prayed that God would fill up these pews. And I told him I'd give up anything to see it happen. But it seemed like he never answered my prayers. I think Nancy learned the lesson that Jesus is for us, but he doesn't work for us, didn't she? Sometimes unanswered prayers are just opportunities for our view of Jesus to get bigger. And I can tell you this, Nancy's view of Jesus is bigger now than it's ever been because Last weekend, we walked out of a nearly full service at our Garwood campus, every seat taken. And I smiled back at her when she mentioned praying for 10 years for full pews. And I, I leaned over and I whispered, Jesus answered your prayer, didn't he? And she cracked a smile back and said, yeah, he did. I just didn't realize he would take our pews too. But I guess full seats will work, won't they? Liquid, are you catching it? I think Nancy knows something very important about the heart of our God. Nothing matters as much as creating a seed in God's house. Nancy is an ordinary person just like us that sacrificed her, her music preferences, her traditions, her memories, even her pews, all the things that she loved and held dear just so that people in her community could have an opportunity to know our God. And I'm hoping by this point, Nancy's story reminds you of someone else you might know. You see, there was a very ordinary and average man named Jesus that was born around 2,000 years ago. 
He would come to earth as a baby. He would live 33 years of life. And by all accounts, there was nothing in his likeness that would make him desirable. But on Sunday, March 29, 33 AD, this man entered into Jerusalem and was proclaimed king. That moment started off a week that would change the world forever. On Monday, March 30th, the very next morning, instead of heading to the palace to claim his throne, he instead went to the temple to clear out the money changers and the religious leaders ultimately sacrificing his crown for what would eventually become a crown of thorns. Because on Friday, Jesus willfully chose to sacrifice his body freely on a cross to end the separation between us and God forever. And if I had the opportunity to ask Jesus the same question that I asked Nancy, why would you be willing to sacrifice so much for people that you have never met? I think I know what Jesus' answer would be. He'd say there's no greater injustice in the entire world than keeping people from their God. So my anger burned bright for you. Guys, I need a much bigger view of Jesus, and my guess is that you do too. Can we set set these small images aside in our life and lock arms over these next five weeks because Jesus is inviting us to sit down at the table with him, to follow in his footsteps, and to know him more. I can't wait to take the journey together, and I can't wait to see you next week as we sit down at the table for a meal that changed history. Love you guys more than you know. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much that you chose a crown of thorns and not a crown of man. Thank you for choosing to go to the temple and riding the injustice of our separation from you. Thank you for restoring us back to relationship with you through your death on the cross. We pray that our view of you could get bigger, that our view of you, that we'd have a capacity to see you in a new light. Change us from the inside out, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening.